Now tonight, I want to speak on a subject that is a subject that causes deep humility in our lives, nothing, nothing of pride, but of deep humility. And that is the text found in Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And I have several passages of Scripture we'll be turning to tonight. But the basic one is in Ephesians 5. So would you turn there first, Ephesians chapter 5. May we bow together in prayer. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank Thee for all that we have experienced this day, the great singing this morning, and that wonderful appeal, the heartwarming message brought by Thine evangel. Thank you for the afternoon services at the jail and the nursing homes and the training union. And for this hour tonight, when we, we have been lifted closer to heaven through the singing and through being reminded of our dear Lord, the price he paid to redeem us from sin. And now, Holy Spirit, do thy work of conviction and convincing and empowering we know that it is not of men's wisdom nor of our personality persuasions but it is of the Lord that there will be power we pray for God's power in this service in Jesus name convict the lost save save them and encourage the saved in Jesus name amen in Ephesians 5:18, a verse that you know by heart, many of you. I want to read the rest of that chapter, but I'd like for you to read verse 18 with me. Verse Ephesians 5:18. Everyone together, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wife be to her own husband in everything. Husband, love your wife, even as Christ loved the church, gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife. They too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. And children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, 
and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in singleness of your hearts as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall, be, shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now those verses form an entity. You cannot really separate them. We take Ephesians 5.18 out of context when we just bring it out by itself and say, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The rest of that chapter and the rest of the sixth chapter tell us the outgrowth of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. As we think of this tonight, we want to think of the Spirit's entrance, the Spirit's earnest, the Spirit's enemies, and the Spirit's empowering. As we think of the text, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4, verse 6, Then he answered and spoke unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, for as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of the body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit were we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Greeks, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink of one Spirit. If you're a Christian tonight, if you've been saved, then you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. If you have not been baptized by the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans chapter 8, then you are not part of the body of Christ. You have never received Jesus as your Savior, and you are still in your sins. The evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not an ecstatic utterance, nor is it the speaking in tongues, nor is it an ability to be eloquent. The evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the presence of Jesus in your life. For when we repent of sin and are brought by the Holy Spirit to see our need of coming to Christ and we receive Him into our heart, then the Bible says we are all baptized by one Spirit into one body. If you turn to John chapter 16 a moment, beginning with verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because ye believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit begins his work in every person's life at the same juncture. 
he makes us aware of our need of a Savior. The business of the Holy Spirit in the man who is outside of Christ is not so much to convict him of the sin of adultery, though adultery is a sin. It is not so much to convict him of the sin of cursing, though cursing is a sin. The work of the Holy Spirit in a man outside of Christ is to bring him to an awareness that his major sin is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, actually, it doesn't exactly take the work of the Holy Spirit to make us aware that adultery is wrong. If you're a married man, your wife will let you know that. If you're a married woman, your husband will let you know that. It doesn't necessarily take the work of the Holy Spirit to let you know that cursing is wrong. Your mom and dad will show you that. When I was growing up, I had one encounter with profanity and ugly words. I remember where I lived and where I was. I don't know what age I was. I was just coming to an age where I heard people saying those things. I lived on Wellington Avenue in Louisville. We were poor. It was during the Depression years. And I had copied some things that I had heard some people say. I probably didn't understand all I was saying. But my mother heard about it. And my mother got a bar of ivory soap. And she washed my mouth out with soap. I'll never forget that. I remember what ivory soap tastes like to this day. And she didn't ever have to do it anymore. Now, there wasn't the Holy Spirit convicting me that cursing and profanity and vulgarity was wrong. It was my mother's soap. I realized it was wrong. But I want to tell you, your mother's soap and your wife or your husband can never convict you of your need of Jesus Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. The Spirit's first work in a man that is outside of Christ is to bring him to an awareness that he needs something he does not have. And when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convince the world, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because of what? Ye believe not on me. That's the sin that he convicts of. It's not the sin of the world. It's not the sin of worldliness in the man outside of Christ. The sin that the Spirit of God convicts a man of is that he needs something he doesn't have. When I was lost before I was saved. I didn't know all the answers about the questions concerning sin or the Bible or theology and a lot of other things. I was a young boy. But I remember being on a train going to Florida and a Jewish lady asked me if I were a Christian. And immediately a dart went to my soul. I knew that whatever she was talking about, I didn't have it. Now she wasn't talking about my sins. I wasn't a big sinner. She wasn't talking about my uh, mischief and all that. She was talking about Jesus. And something inside, like a dagger, drove in here and said, no, I'm not a Christian. How'd I know that? God's Holy Spirit. I remember being in a service when I was very young, maybe four or five years old, and our preacher would preach and point out to the congregation, and incidentally, I believe in bringing little children into the church service, if all possible. And I, would, I sat by my mother, and that night I remember he preached, and, and I don't know what he preached about, but I punched my mother and I said, Mother, is that man fussing at me? Why did I think that? because the Spirit of God was bringing conviction to my heart that I needed something I didn't have, something he was talking about. And then I remember going to church, and when he would point out at the congregation, I'd duck and hide behind somebody sitting in front of me. It was back in the days when the ladies wore broad-brim hats, and I'd try to hide behind those big hats. And you know how ladies do. They'd sit this way a while, and then they'd move. And then uh, they'd sit this way a while, and then they'd move over here. And then they'd move over here. You know, I just thought they moved and squirmed all over that bench, and every time they squirmed, I squirmed. 
because I was trying to hide from that preacher. Now, really what I was doing was hiding from God. The Spirit of God was convicting my heart and making me aware that there was something I did not have and something I needed, and that was Jesus. The first work the Holy Spirit does in a man's heart outside of Christ is convince him of his need of Jesus Christ, that he needs the Lord. Now, he may not understand all about sin. He may not understand all of the things about the Bible. He may not understand all of the nature of Christology. He may not understand a lot of things, a thousand and one things. But I'll tell you, you can never be saved unless the Holy Spirit convinces you that you need Jesus. And when you're convinced of that, you're convicted that you need Jesus Christ and you need him as your Savior, I'll tell you, it's only a step to Jesus because all day long, the Bible says, he's been stretching out his hand to you. He said, I, he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. You come with your sins. You come with your sorrow. You come with your faith. You come with your questions. You come with your lack of faith. But if you'll come, he said, I'll never cast you out. I'll receive you. Christ receiveth sinful men. One of the things that I was wondering when I came to Jesus was how would, how would I know when I really got him? How would I really know it? Well, I want to tell you, I'd heard people talk about feelings. I used to go to a church that had a mourner's bench when I was a young boy. It was a Wesleyan Methodist church. And they'd have people, they'd give an altar call, and the people would come down here and kneel, and, uh, and I didn't know what they would get. And I'd see that. And I didn't, I, I didn't know what, I, was, I believe I was convicted then that I needed something. And one night, a great big lady, Ms. Rothrock, came back. And uh, she was a huge woman. And she came back and she sort of got me, you know, like that. And when she got you, you were got. And so I, I, she got me and sort of pulled me out in the aisle, and I went down there and I knelt. Now, some of them around me were crying. Some of them were laughing. Some of them were shouting. I didn't know what they were doing. And I knelt there, and nothing happened to me. Nobody told me what to do. Nobody told me from the Bible how to be saved. They just said, hold on, turn loose, do something else. I didn't know what they were doing. And I'll tell you, I tried to hold on, and I tried to turn loose, and tried to do everything at one time, and nothing happened. And I got up and went back to my seat as empty as I had been before I went. But then, that night, in that church service, when I'd been ducking and hiding all that time, I was a young boy, but I, my heart was tender, and I knew that God was speaking. And that night, when they gave the invitation, they began to sing, Jesus is tenderly calling thee home, calling today, calling today. Why from the sunshine of love wilt thou roam farther and farther away? Calling today, calling today. And I bowed my head and I said, Lord, I believe you're calling me, but I'm scared of all these people. I want to come to Christ, but I'm scared. And it seemed like I heard a whisper from heaven, Richard, if you'll take the first step, I'll go with you the rest of the way. And I took a step out into the aisle and the Lord Jesus began to go with me and he's been going with me ever since. When the Holy Spirit has come, he will reprove the world. He'll convince the world. He'll convict the world of sin, the sin of unbelief in Jesus. That's where the entrance of the Holy Spirit comes. He comes into our life. And when we receive him, then immediately he, just like that, baptizes us into the body of Christ according to 1 Corinthians 12. In that wonderful passage, let me read it again. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members have of that one body being many or one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit were we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Greek, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. 
the Spirit of God immersed me into the body of Christ. Now notice what happened next in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, who is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. After the Holy Spirit enters, then he provides an earnest in our heart, an earnest that heaven is going to be real, that all the wonderful promises of the word of God are going to be precious and real to my soul. When I came to Jesus, I didn't know all about the future. I didn't know all about heaven. I still don't. Somebody sees me and says, Richard, where are you going to spend eternity? And I say, I'm going to spend it in heaven. How do you know? You've never seen heaven. You don't know what it look like, looks like. And you don't know what it's going to be like when you go down through the valley of the shadow. You've never died. How do you know all about that? I'll say, I'll tell you how I know. When I came to Jesus, the Spirit of God came into my soul and he began to whisper inside of my heart and earnest that heaven is real, that Jesus is real, that the Word of God is real, that the things that I have never seen with my eye are all real because the Spirit of God has come in and given the earnest of our inheritance. Now, what is earnest? If you're going to buy a farm, you go down and put a down payment on that farm. That's earnest money that holds it until you pay the whole money, until you pay the whole price. That's a down payment. Now, the Bible says your down payment, God's down payment in your life, in my life, about heaven is the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? I've never been to heaven, neither of you. I don't think there's anybody in here who's been to heaven and back. Some of you may nearly have died, and you may have remembered seeing lights or gone through a tunnel or something. I've read all those experiences they read about and they tell about in the Reader's Digest and so on, and in that wonderful book about uh, life after death and so on. That's all wonderful. And I'm sure it's uh, something, those experiences are valid and, and important and we ought to read it and we ought to soak it up and be interested in it. But I'll tell you, I've got something better than that. Better than those stories. And that is the earnest of the Holy Spirit who has come into my heart and whispers, Amen, Amen, Amen. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And the Holy Spirit whispers, Amen, Amen. And in that city there is no death, amen. There's no more pain, amen. There's no more sorrow, amen. And God shall wipe away all tears from your eyes, amen. Yesterday I had two funerals. Thank God I could say it both of them. There's coming a day in that wonderful city of God where there will be no more crying. I saw a man stand by his 80-year-old father and weep. I saw two sons stand by their dear mother and weep. And oh, how wonderful it was to be able to say there's coming a day when God will take the great handkerchief of eternity and wipe those tears away. How do I know that? Because the Holy Spirit coming into our heart is the down payment that heaven is real. He is the earnest of our inheritance until the purchase of the property is completed until we see Jesus, the earnest of our inheritance. Now thirdly, 
I want us to think for a few moments about the enemies of the Spirit. The enemies of the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now listen. There's Spirit points to Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit never points to himself. He constantly points to Jesus. Somebody came to D.L. Moody one day and said, I'm a Holy Ghost woman. Mr. Moody said, I can tell right now you don't know anything about the Holy Ghost. Because when the Holy Spirit is real to you, you don't dwell on him, you dwell on Jesus. You point to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's purpose is to point to Jesus, constantly pointing to Jesus. One of our teens gave me this article. I appreciate that. It says, the nature of Jesus veiled behind myths. An article, I assume, out of the Courier-Journal, maybe today's Courier. I don't know what paper it came out of. And in it, it tells uh, from a human standpoint all the modern thoughts concerning Jesus. Was he really the Son of God? Did he ever claim to be the Messiah? And all of the things, a lot of it's blasphemy. But you know what? I'm really interested. These German rationalists, they, they say these are rationalists from Western Europe. And American theologians have been strongly influenced by them. There's a quote by a professor at Southern Baptist Seminary uh, who calls himself an enlightened conservative. And uh, uh, he, he says uh, the nature of Christ is not soluble and so on. Well, I'll tell you, if you just think in your own thoughts, if you just ap approach this with your own mind, with the untaught mind, the mind that is not it is not moved upon by the Holy Spirit. You may come up with any concept about Jesus. You may not know what Jesus is. You may grope around and grope in darkness and think this and think that and so on. But do you know why for 2,000 years Bible-believing, Bible-taught, Holy Spirit-filled Christians have said Jesus is God? Do you know why? Because the Holy Spirit inside of our hearts whispers, Amen, Amen, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That's the first work of the Holy Spirit. He points to Jesus. He testifies of Jesus. He talks about Jesus. Now, he also talks about the purity of Jesus in our lives so that as we are led by the Holy Spirit of God, there comes to our minds a hatred for sin. Jesus said the sermon in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about the behavior pattern of Christians, of kingdom men, he said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. One of the first things the Holy Spirit does is to, is to make our minds hate sin and to make our hearts hate sin. Now, this causes a conflict because our bodies love sin, right? Our old nature loves sin. But when Christ comes in, he causes a conflict because the new nature hates sin. And so there's a conflict constantly. The old black preacher used to say, in every man's, every believer's life, there are two dogs, a black dog and a white dog, and they're constantly warring, constantly fussing, constantly at each other. And the one you say sick them to wins the battle. In our lives, there's an old nature. It loves the base things of life. It's easy for some teen, some young adult, some old man, some old woman, and I'll tell you, sin is not a respecter of age. It comes to everybody, little kids, junior kids, teen kids, adult kids, and old kids. They're all alike. Sin 
takes its toll. And so it's easy for the old nature to say, well, I like this. Boy, I want this. I want to read these old trashy magazines because I like what I read. I want to watch that old X-rated television and, and movie downtown because I like it. It just makes me, you know, it does something inside. Gives me a tickle in my gizzard. I like it. I, it, it, it causes girls to write notes to boys and boys to write notes to girls suggesting all kinds of suggestive things. The old base nature. I think how different that is from precious notes that are written sometimes talking about Jesus. Let me ask you, what recently have you written to your friend? Have you written some old note about, oh dear darling, I hope you'll hold me in your arms and kiss me and love me? Or have you written, I'm proud of you because you're a servant of Jesus Christ. Now you know, the place the Holy Spirit has in your life will determine what you say with your lips, what you say with your hands and your letters, what you do with your body and your actions, the place the Holy Spirit gives. And the enemy of the Holy Spirit Found in Ephesians 4.30, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you're sealed into the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and evil and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away with, from you with all malice. And be ye kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. The enemy of the Spirit of God, the enemy of the Spirit's power is the old nature. The old nature is easily offended. You cross somebody's path and boy, they get mad. They lift their tongue out. They lift out like that. I'm mad. Don't bother me. Where'd that come from? From the Holy Spirit, right? Holy Spirit led you to do that. Why no? The old nature got offended. And you're involving yourself in Ephesians 4.30. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Now this doesn't say that when you get offended that you're not sealed anymore. That's the, that's the problem. See, you still are sealed. That's where the conflict comes. If you, were, if you lost your salvation by those things, there wouldn't be any conflict. You'd just go right on merrily. But the problem is you can't stand with yourself. You can't stand anybody else either. And you don't know what to do. You just want to get over here in a corner and pout and get all mad. Get a bunch of friends around you and tell them all about it. You know, you see, the problem is what we need to do is to come back to Jesus and say, Jesus, I, I'm wrong. I've sinned. And I've done this thing against you. You see, when we sin, our sin isn't against somebody else. Do you remember when David sinned? Now, notice what he did. He took Bathsheba, who was Uriah's wife. He defiled her. And then when he found out she was going to have a child, he sent for her husband to come home. And he tried to get him drunk, tried to get him to go down and live a lie. And when he couldn't do any of those things, he sent him back to battle and killed him. Now when Nathan, the king's pastor, came to see him, he said, uh, you know the story. He said there was a man down the road and he had a lot of 
cattle and everything he could want and he had some company and some somebody came in and, and there was a little tenant farmer across the road and he didn't have anything but a little ewe lamb and and uh, this mean old tenant this old mean landowner sent over and got the little ewe lamb and gobbled him up for dinner now king what do you think ought to be done the king was ash and angry his sense of judgment and justice was violated and he said he ought to die and nathan said thou art the man now what did king david do King David started excusing himself and said, well, well, you know, it's not my fault, and you know how it is, and after all, I'm just human, and, and after all, and, or did he call the deacons and get rid of the preacher? Said, uh, I, I, this man's gotten too nosy. I don't want to work with him anymore. No, you know what David did? Psalm 51 says that David got out on his knees and he said, Lord, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Was David telling a lie? Why, he had sinned against Bathsheba, he had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against the kingdom. He had sinned in the sight of God, in sight of all the people. And yet when he comes to repent, he says, Lord, Lord, I sinned against you and you only. Why did he say that? Because David had a heart that was like the heart of God. He was a Christian. And when he was caught in his sin, he said, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. But oh, as awful as my sin was against Bathsheba, as awful as my sin was against Uriah, as awful as my sin was against all the people of the kingdom, the worst part of my sin was it was against God, against God. And he repented. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Listen, when you and I sin, our sin may be against some brother, some sister. It may be some sin against some person. But in reality, if you're a saved person, your sin is against God. Against God. And this says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Because when you grieve the Holy Spirit, you have no more spiritual power, no more spiritual luster, no more spiritual effectiveness. And your prayers are hindered. And the power line is inter interrupted. Oh, let us turn back to our God for he will abundantly pardon. The last part of the message, not only do we see the Spirit's entrance and the Spirit's earnest and the Spirit's enemy, but we see the Spirit's empowering. In Ephesians 5, 18, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? When you first get saved, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you have all the Holy Spirit that you'll ever have but he doesn't have all that he'll ever have of you. Isn't that interesting? We have all of the Holy Spirit, but he may not have all of us. He may be resident, but he may not be president of the corporation of our life. And he must be president. He must reign in every area, the playroom, the dining room, the business room, the bedroom every area of our life. The Holy Spirit must be president of the whole corporation, of our body, of our life, of our spirit, of our soul. And when he is not president, then he doesn't have access to all the areas of our life. I read a story of a preacher who uh, performed the wedding of a very wealthy family 
a young lady from a wealthy family, a young man from a wealthy family, very, very wealthy. When the wedding was over, they presented the preacher a box, a little, little wrapped box. He eagerly opened it. It was a gift. And uh, in it, he found a pair of gloves. Well, he thought, I don't need these gloves. It's summertime. What am I going to do with these gloves? So he put them in his drawer. He thought, that's a strange gift for them to give me, just a pair of gloves. And so he spent the rest of the summer. And uh, in the late winter, there was a cold spell. And uh, he was on his way out to the car one morning. And he thought, I I'm going to get those gloves that they gave me. I'm going to wear them this morning. So he tried to put his hand in the glove, and he got his finger in one of them and it wouldn't go any further. Tried to put his finger in the other, and it wouldn't go any further. And he reached in and felt like there was something in there. And he pulled out, and out of one finger came a $100 bill. He reached into the next finger, and there came another $100 bill. He reached in another finger, and here came another $100. He said, I'm going to try the other hand. And every one of those fingers had a $100 bill. How much is that? That's $1,000. He had it in that drawer all winter long. Never used it. He didn't know he had it, but he had it anyway. The Holy Spirit is in your life. He came there when you received Jesus as your Savior. He became resident, but not until you realize his presence. Not until you pause and ask for his fullness. Not until you let him make a clean sweep of every area of your life will you find all the blessings he wants to give you. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And how does a person filled with the Holy Spirit behave? There are points that remind us of that in the rest of this passage that we read a moment ago. Number one, verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. A person filled with the Holy Spirit will be a singing Christian. I like to watch what people do when we're singing. If they sit back there and like that, I just wonder what in the world's wrong. Because when Jesus comes in, he puts a song in your soul. The Holy Spirit coming inside will bring psalms and hymns and spiritual song, and you'll sing, making melody in your hearts. Number two, Verse 20, the person who is filled with the Holy Spirit will be a thankful Christian, giving thanks unto God always. A person who has a hard time saying thank you, I just wonder, is, is, are, you, are we really filled with the Holy Spirit when we don't have that spirit of gratitude? Thirdly, verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. A, a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit will have a humble spirit. He'll be submissive first to God and to his fellow be beings and believers. Not, to, not somebody that is a know-it-all, but somebody who is with a humble, meek spirit, able to be easily entreated and worked with. And in verse 22, a person filled with the Holy Spirit, a wife filled with the Holy Spirit, will submit herself unto her own husband as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. A wife filled with the Holy Spirit will be that kind of a wife. And next, in verse 25, a husband filled with the Holy Spirit will love his wife, incidentally, Husbands, did you know the Bible doesn't command the wife to love her husband? It says, husbands, love your wife. Because it's the husband's responsibility to awaken love within that wife. And the Scripture says that a husband filled with the Holy Spirit will love his own wife, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Well, how did the Lord love the church? He loved it enough to die for it? Yes. 
but he also loved enough to live for it. And the love is outlined in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is long-suffering, gentle, and peaceable, and all those wonderful characteristics. A person filled with the Holy Spirit will be that kind of a husband. And on and on we could go. In chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Children who are filled with the Holy Spirit will be obedient children. And in verse 4, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. I know some fathers that purposely just lay wait to see if they can provoke their children to wrath. A father filled with the Holy Spirit will not do that, will be, will be tenderhearted and loving and remember what it was like when he was a boy or when he was a child. And in verse 5, servants, be obedient to them that are your masters and uh, not serving with singleness, with, uh, serving with singleness of your heart as unto Christ. In other words, your attitude will be what you do, you do it as unto Jesus. And in verse 9, you masters do the same thing. All of this, a perfect outline of how a person filled with the Holy Spirit will live and will obey and will walk with the Savior in the light of His Word. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Where does the Spirit of God stand in your life? What kind of access does He have? Where does He operate in your life, in my life? Could we tonight say, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to be literally empowered by the Spirit of God. It's not a matter of praying for us to have more of the Spirit but praying, Spirit, take more of us. Take more of me. Take my hands. Let them move at the impulse of thy will. Take my feet. Let them walk where you want them. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Take my tongue and let me speak for thee. Take my voice. And let me sing always and only for my king. Take me, Lord. Consecrate my energies unto thee. I yield myself to thee. When we come to that point where we can say, Spirit of the living God, have your way. Take me, break me, make me, mold me, use me. Whatever it takes, that's what I'm willing to do. Then the Spirit of God can use this. Charles Finney was an attorney. He was sort of atheistic, agnostic. He had heard the gospel story. He had rejected it over and over. And then one day God began to convict him not so much of arrogancy and pride and all those things, though they were true, but he convicted him of his need of Jesus. And Charles Finney humbled his heart before Jesus and received Jesus as his Savior. And he said, Lord, I want to give you all I am, all I have, all I'll ever be. Instantly, Charles Finney was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of his new birth, his experience with Christ. They say that Charles Finney could go into a factory and all he'd have to do is walk in a factory and people over there working on the lathe and in the shop and so on would be slain by the Spirit of God and they'd cry out what must I do to be saved Charles Finney led in the great awakening in America bringing about revival everywhere he went the secret he was a man filled with the Spirit of Jesus have you ever known anybody filled with the Spirit of Jesus you can be tonight. You can be filled with Jesus' Spirit. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. The price, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What is the hidden truth there? Whatever a man is controlled by will control him. And the graphic illustration, if a man is controlled by liquor, if he's full of liquor, he'll be controlled by it. 
That's the reason the Lord said, be not drunk with wine. Be not filled with wine because it will control you, but be filled with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will control you. So when we take that simple illustration, be not filled with hate because hate will control you, but be filled with the Spirit. Do not be filled with lust because lust will control you, but be filled with the Spirit. Do not be filled with love just for your family or your friends because that will control you but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do not be filled just with pride, because that'll control you, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be controlled or filled with any kind of worldliness, because that'll control you, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, there'll be power in your life. And then will come revival. And I believe God wants this church to be a revival church, to be the kind of church that can make an attention mechanism on the city of Bowling Green can say to this whole city look to Jesus let's call the attention of the city of Bowling Green to Jesus Christ let's go out in the highways and hedges across this city across this county and say Jesus saves Jesus is the one altogether lovely but I'll tell you they won't believe us unless we're filled with the Spirit if we go out in our own pride if we go out in our own arrogancy, if we go out just bragging about ourselves or our church, they won't believe us. But if we go out bragging about Jesus, if we go out filled with Jesus, controlled by the Holy Spirit, then whatsoever we do in word or deed will be done to the glory of Jesus Christ, and people will look to Jesus and honor Him. That's what we want. That's what we want. May we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment. Our Father, thank you for the privilege of being in this service tonight. We pray for God's power upon every one of us here. Lord, help us to be filled with the Spirit. May we be aware that this kind cometh not out but by prayer and fasting. May we be willing to yield ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, asking you to touch those who are lost and draw them to Christ. For Christ's sake, amen. May we stand, please. We're going to sing number 240. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. As we sing, this is God's invitation tonight. I would ask you to come to Jesus, just like you are, with your sins and your sorrows and your hurts. But come, come to him tonight. If you're here without Jesus, You've never really stepped over the great divide that separates between doubt and assurance, between the world and the kingdom, between hell and heaven. I'd ask you to do it tonight. Just step over. It's only a step to Jesus. The devil says, don't do it tonight. Wait till you have more feeling. Wait till, you're, you, wait till some kind of sign comes. Or wait till you're sure you can live it true to the end. Wait and wait and wait. God says, don't delay. Come tonight. Today is the accepted time. Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. You don't know about tomorrow. Just come. Come tonight. I urge you to do that. Come with your sins and your sorrows, but come to Jesus. And if you've already been saved, but you've never made it public, you ought to step out for the Lord tonight. And if you need a church home, and God wants you at this church. Why don't you come tonight and say, I want to make Glendale Baptist Church my church home while I'm here in this city. Do what God tells you to do. 
and dear friend, Christian friend, if you're saved. But you haven't let God have power in your life. The Holy Spirit has been resident, but not president. I wonder if you'd like to come tonight and say, I want Jesus Christ to be president of the corporation of my life. I want him to be Lord of all. Would you? Do what Jesus tells you to do. The act of consecration is canceled by one reserve. Just one. I believe there are people here tonight that God wants to use in a fantastic way. There's no end to how God can use you, but something's going to have to die in our lives before he can use us. We'll have to die to pride, die to self, to self's will. We're going to have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when he is come, he'll bring refreshment and joy and peace and pardon and purpose and power. And our life will take on a luster. Do what Jesus tells you to do. While we begin to sing, who will step out first for the king? God help you to do it.